giving, Christian giving, because I don't like talking about money too much if I can avoid it, uh, but because the Bible does mention it, I'm going to have to mention it at least once in the calendar year. So um, I'm going to talk about Christian giving today. The title of the message is, Do I Have to Tithe? Do I Have to Tithe? So this is going to be an interesting subject. Uh, it's one for you to have a healthy debate with your, your friends about over the dinner table. Do I have to tithe? So we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, just so you're aware, next Sunday, um, Bucky, Dr. Alomalei, is going to be sharing back on the study of First John. Um, they are away this week, but they'll be back next Sunday. And then the week after, which is going to be the 1st of November, how fast is this year going? Uh, we're actually going to be having, I hope this is all right for me to say this, I did ask the leadership, Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday. Most people in the year, on the 31st of October, they like to celebrate things like ghosts and pumpkins with faces etched in them. We like to celebrate Martin Luther, the 95 Theses, and beer. No, no not beer, unless you're, Martin Luther drank a lot of beer. You don't have to drink beer to be celebrating the Reformation. But we're going to be celebrating the Reformation on the 1st of November. And uh, I'm really, really pumped to do this. It's something I've wanted to do for ages, is mark Reformation Day uh, at HCC. So I'm going to be sharing from a text that was massively important in the Reformation and getting back in touch with our heritage as uh, gospel-preaching Christians here in the UK on that Sunday. And then if you want, if the pubs are still open, we may descend on one of the local pubs for a beer to honor Luther after service. <laughs> you can drink soda water and lime if you want. That's absolutely fine. There's no compulsion. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing on 1st November. So wonderful. Put that in your diaries. Praise the Lord. Uh, okay, so today's message is entitled, Do I Have to Tithe? Do I Have to Tithe? Um, I think this is a subject that hopefully will bring you a lot of freedom in your approach to finances. Uh, it's one that certainly has helped me to have a biblical view on giving. So we're going to be asking that question, do I have to tithe? As a Christian, since I'm not under the law but I'm under grace, am I obligated to give 10% of my earnings to the church? Because of course a tithe means 10%, doesn't it? Okay. So we're going to be asking maybe some other questions as well, such as, what if I don't have much money to give? What if I just don't have much to give? Do I still have to give some of that? Would God frown upon it if I didn't give? And also, when I do give to church, when I do give, where does that money go? What does the Bible say about how churches ought to be using giving? Where does it go? So I hope today is going to bring you some biblical perspective on giving. Uh, it may uh, help you orientate yourself in the way that you or your family uh, treat the subject of generosity and of handling finances, especially as it pertains to local church. Um, I guess, why do we talk about money at church? Why do that? Well, it's not the sort of subject that I would relish talking about if it were down to me. If it were down to me, money would be way down on that list of priorities. But 
it isn't always up to me what I share here as a pastor of Hope City Church. I don't get 100% of the say in what we cover. The Bible does. And because the Bible mentions finances, I've got to talk about it. At least once in every calendar year, we've got to deal with the subject, simply because the Bible does. The Bible addresses finances. And so, therefore, we, we've got to pay attention to what the Bible says about it. Otherwise, we can end up with worldly views about finances. We can end up with views about finances that are colored by our traditions. If you've been in church for any portion of your life, you no doubt will have come into contact with some kind of a teaching, whether it was taught in the church or whether it was caught by you because something or nothing or nothing was said about finances. You caught a message about finances and giving. And so therefore, I think it's important to be open uh, and upfront about giving and be clear on it so that even if it does offend some, at least it doesn't leave anyone in the dark. So I'd prefer to do it that way and to try as best we can to have a biblical perspective on what it means to give financially. So before we do that, how many of you know about tithing? Put your hand up if you've come into contact with, with teachings on tithing. Well, you, all, you all have, so I'm preaching to the choir, but I won't go deep. But the tithe effectively, of course, uh, means a tenth, and uh, it's mentioned in Leviticus 27. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So the tithe was holy. It was set apart. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. So the tithe was holy to God. It was separated to him. Now what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, there wasn't just one tithe actually. There were several. Did you know that? There were several tithes. So there are actually three tithes in the law that the Israelite would actually end up giving. And it meant that an Israelite under the law ended up giving more like 20%, in fact, just over 20% of their resources throughout their lifetime, rather than just a flat 10%. So I, I didn't realize that, but there were a few tithes and the Israelites were obliged to give that under the law. Now the tithe, how many of you know, was there to support who? The priests, exactly, yeah, the, the Levite priests. So they had no inheritance in the land of Israel. So when they inherited the promised land, um, are we all good? We were okay. Um, when they inherited the promised land, the Levites didn't get an inheritance in that land. So the tithe was simply a way uh, that the Levites were catered for. They had their needs met. Uh, their duty was obviously to serve God in the tabernacle uh, and as priests. And so therefore, the rest of Israel tithed, and in that way, they supported God's chosen priests. There was also a tithe of feasts. Imagine that. So you tithe to a feast. I think we should reinstitute that one. You know, um, tithing towards a massive feast each year. Praise the Lord. That's in Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27. I'm serious, though. Can we bring back feasts in HCC? I think it would be quite fun. When, when all the COVID stuff goes, feasting. That, that should be something we should work through, Dean. Figure that one out. Um, <laughs> so the, here we go. We talk about the tithe as being there to support um, the Levites 
who did not have an inheritance in the promised land. And it was considered holy to God. So under the law, the tithe wasn't really considered as kind of giving, okay? In the same way that you and I would think about giving. We think probably in terms of giving about it being something voluntary. You know, I, I saw a guy in the subway and I gave him five pounds because he looked like he needed something to eat, right? That, that's giving. I've given that voluntarily. In the moment, I've decided I can afford to give him fiver, all right? The tithe isn't quite like that in the sense that it was more like a tax. It was more like a tax. You, you were obligated to give that 10% in the law. Um, it wasn't sort of freely given by you. It was actually owed by you because you were inheriting the promised land. You came under the counsel and laws of God and therefore you gave the tithe. If you didn't give the tithe, it was kind of more serious than not handing the homeless guy a fiver. If you don't give the homeless guy a fiver, then maybe you're going to have a wrestle with your conscience, but you're not going to be guilty of sin, okay? Um, whereas if they didn't tithe, it wasn't like, hey guys, come on, we really need to be more generous. Actually, those who didn't tithe were called thieves. So it's a bit more serious, a bit different than just giving. So in Malachi 3, verse 8 to 12, it says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not therefore open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3 verses 8 to 12. So under the law, your giving... That started after you'd paid your tithe. It, tithe wasn't giving, it was effectively uh, obligated upon you. It was a tax, okay, in a sense. And there's a sense in this passage in Malachi that the Israelites hadn't actually stopped tithing altogether. It wasn't that they'd stopped tithing altogether, it's they weren't bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. So the Lord says, bring it all in. So the, the Lord was very specific about this being a 10% representation of your resources. And their failure to tithe brought a curse upon them. It actually brought uh, a penalty that they had not given the full 10%. And we can deduce that what that looked like was uh, lack. The devourer came in and their crops were destroyed they were unprotected from the attacks of the devil. God actually says, test me in this. Test me to see if I won't be faithful to my promise about the tithe. See if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessing upon you. And there are actually uh, a few promises like this in the Old Testament. So it's interesting that the tithe should be included in that. It certainly shows us that uh, with regards to the tithe, God was quite serious uh, that this be fulfilled. Now, that's all well and good, and I imagine that a fair few of you will have been familiar with that teaching on the tithe. But that's not the question today. The question isn't, what is the tithe? The question is, do I have to tithe? 
do I as a Christian have to tithe since I am not under the law? So, here are the differences between us and the Israelites. Number one, we aren't under the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Secondly, the Israelites worshipped at Jerusalem. They worshipped at Jerusalem. They had to go up to sacrifice at Jerusalem once a year. You don't have to do that. There is no equivalent to uh, the, the, the uh, oh, what word am I looking for? The pilgrimage that Muslims have to take in their lives uh, to Mecca. There is no Christian equivalent. We are not called to travel to Jerusalem at least once in our lifetimes, lifetime. rather. The Israelites sacrificed animals. Much of the tithe was in livestock. It wasn't actually money. It was livestock. As far as I'm aware, most of you don't have livestock. I don't know about you, Rob. Maybe Rob is the sort of guy to have the odd bit of livestock. Few cows. Well, other than Rob, who may still have to tithe, uh, <laughs> you don't have livestock, so you couldn't tithe in a true Hebraic sense. Also, the Jews under the law couldn't eat shellfish, could they? They couldn't mix fabrics, but you can. Praise the Lord. If you want to eat shellfish, fill your boots. You're allowed to. So as part of the law, isn't the tithe, along with these other things like mixing fabrics and eating shellfish, isn't it just another one of those things that we don't have to do any longer because we're not under the law. We're in Christ. Also, there aren't any Levites that need supporting anymore. We live in England. Now, however fondly you look at this fair nation, it's not actually historically the promised land of God, is it? Uh, so we have not inherited physical property from the Lord. We don't have a priesthood to support. Uh, and one of the major purposes of the tithe was to support the Levites who didn't gain an inheritance in the promised land. So therefore, surely in that sense, there's no obligation for you and I to be tithing. And I think it's true to say that we're not any longer under the law. We aren't under the law in the same sense that the Jews were. We read in Ephesians 2, 13 to 15, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has been made both one and has, sorry, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And again, in Galatians chapter 2.19, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So we see that through Christ, in his fulfillment of the law, in his sinless life, and in his atoning death, he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law which were upon the people of God. And in so doing, when we become a Christian, we don't enter into that kind of a, an ob obedience to the law. We're not here to try and fulfill God's commands in order that we may, may be justified with him, but we enter into Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law, both in his active obedience and his passive. And so, in that sense that we aren't under the law, that there isn't a group of Levite priests to support, 
that we don't own livestock that may be tithed, that we don't have agricultural produce which may be tithed, the answer to the question, do you have to tithe is, no. No, you don't have to tithe. You don't have to tithe. You're not obligated to tithe. You aren't under that same law. You're under grace. Now, it's easy enough to say, isn't it? Well, we're under grace, not law. But I think sometimes it helps for us to define that a little bit more carefully. The covenant of grace that we're under today isn't a covenant made between Christians and God, is it? It isn't a covenant that you entered into because you prayed a prayer. The covenant is not between you and God, but it's between God and God. The covenant of grace is a covenant made between Father and Son, not between man and God as the law was. The covenant of the law was made between who? Moses and God, man and God. So we aren't entering into anything like the Mosaic Covenant. We're entering into a covenant of grace made between Father and Son. So those who enter into grace, like you and I have, we're entering into something that is actually perfect. It's actually perfect. We can't add anything to it, and we can't take anything away from it. It's perfect. Moreover, the Bible tells us there's no shadow of turning in God. Do you know what that means? It's a really poetic way of saying God doesn't change. He's immutable, as we talk about in theology textbooks. It means God doesn't change. So this covenant of grace that you and I are under isn't subject to change. There's nothing you can do to devalue it. There's nothing you can actually do to give it more value. Okay? Whereas under the law, the promises of God, like we read actually in the 43rd chapter of Isaiah earlier, the promises of God, you're seeing them actually happen, was conditional upon your abeyance of them. All right? If you read actually in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the promises of God and the curses of God appear alongside one another in the back end of the book of Deuteronomy. And what happened when the Israelites entered into the promised land, there were two mountains. And off the one mountain, they called out the promises of God for those who fulfill the law. And off the other mountain, they shouted the curses of God for those who did not fulfill the law. And that's the kind of covenant that they entered into. It was conditional upon their fulfillment of the promises set out by God through Moses. Whereas the covenant we enter into was made between father and son. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the commandments and conditions of his father, not simply through a dry obedience, but because he was his son. And he fulfilled those commandments as God perfectly. So the covenant you and I enter into is one we enter into with Christ. And we're actually in him. If you read uh, John chapter 17, Jesus's prayer, it's marvelous. And sometimes when you read it, you're like trying to, you're like, Jesus, why do you keep repeating yourself? You know, that they may be in me as I am in you, and that they, it's all about in you, in me, they in me, uh, those who you gave me. And sometimes with the language, I would get my head kind of twisted and think, I think I'm lost. I think it sounds like we're just all in one another, like a bunch of Russian dolls, something like that. But the point being, 
is that being a Christian, being a Christian isn't like any other religion in the world. It's the only religion that is not based on a covenant between man and God. It's the only religion where you are not held to account before God solely on your works. You're justified in the eyes of God because of God's works. You are justified in the eyes of God because of what his son did. And you enter into Jesus, right? That's, that's what actually happens when you become a believer. The old person, the old you is crucified, and the new life that you have is in Christ. It's you in him, like a Russian doll. So therefore, your justification is because you're in Jesus. It's not because you have somehow managed to pray the right prayer, right? We said the right words, and like a magic spell, we've been justified because of the right words. It isn't because we do well at going to church every Sunday. It's not because we're inherently good people, um, although I do believe the Holy Spirit takes us on that journey throughout our Christian life where we begin to hate the old works that we did and we begin to love God and love holiness like we've been talking about. But this covenant of grace, we can't actually make our relationship with God any closer and more intimate than it currently is in Christ Jesus. You can't twist God's arm to love you any more than he already does. Not by giving more, not by giving less. You can't turn God's favor away from you as a true born-again Christian. He set his love upon you, and if God's immutable, he can't turn it away. There are things God can't do. He's a covenantal God, and he will not go back on his promises. Amen? And that's good news, isn't it, when we think about giving? That's wonderful news. It means this. It means that under grace... Um, under grace, let me just read this. Your level of giving, your tithing, your offerings, they don't make you any more or less blessed. They don't make you any more loved or unloved. You can't bring yourself closer to God through giving more money. You can't take yourself further away from God as a born-again Christian by giving less. Under grace, nothing can stop God's blessing and love from getting to his children. Nothing. Nothing. I think that's so important for us to hold on to. That's a gospel truth that we don't want to let go of. And unfortunately, if we get it just ever so slightly off, we can end up in one of those kind of religious systems that's just like every other religion in the world. It's all about what we do and God's reaction to what we do, and we can somehow twist God's arm to make us, him treat us in a certain way, right? And we're into something that isn't authentic, gospel-centered Christianity the minute we forget that. So it's important to remind ourselves of this covenant of grace that we're under. There's a preaching out there that says that unless you tithe, God can't bless you. Unless you tithe, you are unprotected. If you don't tithe, God cannot bless your finances. Well, Romans 8.38 says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love. 
as a child of God, nothing that you do can separate you from his blessings and his favor. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's language says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That's past tense. Through entering into this covenant of grace, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It isn't that God waits until you conditionally fill all of these other requirements until he can release his blessing. That's something other than the covenant of grace. I think it's important for us to focus on what God's giving looks like. And that's what I want to finish with today, is for us to get a proper gospel-centered Christian view on what giving looks like. Let's take a closer look at what God's giving looked like. So, under grace, giving isn't a legal obligation. We've heard this. It's not a legal obligation. As I said, you don't have to tithe. You're not obligated to give HCC 10% of your earnings. That's good news. Amen. Nor is it something that you can do to gain the favor of God. You've already got it. You've already got it. You're in Christ Jesus. He has set his love upon you. His love is being poured out without measure into your hearts right now, just through the merit of Jesus. Nothing that you can do or have done can change that. You are his sons and daughters in Christ. For those who trust in Jesus, who truly realize the depth of their own sinfulness and the unworthiness of God's love, for those who truly cast their whole faith upon Christ to be justified before God, there's nothing that can stop God's love getting to them. There's nothing that can prevent God's blessings getting to them. Those who are truly saved have all of God's love right now, and it will continue to be that way. When we look at God's giving, we recognize in John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That word giving is important, isn't it? It means that it wasn't a loan. The father didn't loan us Jesus, expecting us to pay back what was owed. No interest was added. You don't have to work off what you owe to God. He also gave his son because of his inherent goodness. That's really important to note from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Does that make sense? God's giving of his son wasn't because he saw something in you and I that was worth the payment. That would be to get the gospel the wrong way round. God didn't look down to earth and say, this group of people is worth the cost of my own son. Therefore, I will pay my own son. When God looked down to earth, all he saw was you and I running headlong away from him at enmity with God, haters of God in sin and in darkness. He gave his own son because of his own worthiness, because of his love, not because he saw something that his son was worth the cost of. Does that make sense? And I do think that's a bit of a false ideology out in the church right now, is that from looking at the cross, we're supposed to derive something about our value, that we're supposed to look and say, well, how valuable am I then? 
Now, I'm not saying that's entirely false, okay? Because Jesus came to purchase you, and it's in him that you have value. But God didn't look to earth and think, whoa, I want that. Right, uh, let me have a look in the wallet. What have I got? Uh, well, I can't, I can't pay my angels. You know, I, I can't pay my wisdom. I've got to, okay, it's worth this. It's worth my son. Will you take that? It's not like that, is it? Okay, we were undeserving of Jesus coming to save us. Otherwise, it's not of grace. If we deserved Jesus, God simply paid the right price and he got what he wanted, right? It isn't like that. So when we look at the cross, we're to actually see God's worthiness, God's goodness, God's love, rather than our own worthiness. When we give under grace, we're not giving from obligation. We're not giving because we see some inherent worth in what we're giving to. We're to give just as God gives, from love. We give from love. We don't give expecting something in return. That's how it works. We don't give expecting that somehow we'll get a payoff. If we tithe, then God's blessings will be poured out on my finances and jobs and better jobs and raises and bonuses. That's not why we give. We give from love, not expecting anything in return. We give from an overflow of grace in our hearts, not in order to be blessed, but because we are already blessed. And the money that you give to church, we hear in the New Testament, has to go to certain places. It goes to ministry to the poor. Paul says, doesn't he, I'm glad to be ministering to the poor. It was the one thing I was eager to do as he received advice from the apostles, didn't he, in Jerusalem. So I was eager to minister to the poor. I want us to be eager as a church to minister to the poor. That's one thing that we're going to be doing. And when you give, that's what we are encouraged by the Bible to do, is to minister to the needs of those who have not much at all. And we're surrounded by those poor in Wolverhampton. The Bible says the poor will always have them with us. So there'll always be a place for ministry to the poor in our giving. And also, it goes towards, towards rather the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry, the preaching of the gospel and the discipling of God's people, which is what Paul talks about when he says, those who work for the gospel shall live from the gospel. Uh, do not muzzle the ox as it's treading out the grain. I'm the ox. That's my job in this fellowship. You know, my job is to tread out grain. I'm not here to be some fancy pants uh, preacher. I'm a servant. And the Bible tells me that my income should be from the ministry. And so some of the money will go towards supporting me and my family in the work of ministry and those who uh, serve alongside us in the furtherance of the gospel uh, in the city of Wolverhampton and in this region as well. So that's where our money goes. It's to the ministry to the poor and also to the ministry to those who are poor in spirit, who, who don't know Jesus, um, and to the work of discipling and raising up uh, Christians. Finally, I'm going to just tell you uh, this, which is simply my experience of giving. Even though we're not under the law, even though we're not obligated to give 10%, it's something that I practice. I practice giving 10%. Why do I do that? Why do I give 10% even though I've just spent 40 minutes telling you that you don't have to? 
I give 10% because what I've realized is through looking at the New Testament and the covenant of grace and what Jesus says, it's clear to me that the Old Testament is not obsolete. The law may have become obsolete in the sense that it isn't binding on you. You aren't under it. But by the same token, when you read the Old Testament, do you see, like I do, lots of things in there that show me what pleases God? And there are lots of things in there that show me what doesn't please God. So as Christians, though we find our covenant to enter into a relationship with God in the New Testament through Jesus Christ and shadowed in the Old, we're turned back from the New Covenant to the Old, in a sense, because we begin to love the law of God. If you read Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, David spends the whole time talking about how he loves the precepts of God, how he loves the law. He loves the law. Why? Because it shows him what pleases the lover of his soul, his Father in heaven. And what I see in the Old Testament is a generous God. I see a God who wants to see that same generosity reciprocated in his children. And so for me, giving of 10% is just a benchmark. It's a healthy benchmark for me to see. Because in the Old Testament, which is a, uh, a covenant which is passing away, uh, I think it is in the uh, book of Corinthians, where it talks about Moses coming down from the mountain. And as he came down, his, faith was, his face was shining with the glory of God, but it was passing away. Um, and then this new covenant that we're under right now is, a, is a, a covenant which carries a far greater glory, isn't it? So if in the old covenant I see God's people giving 10%, I, th I guess it inspires me to think, well, what might be possible under grace for me? There is no law on me. I don't have to give 10%. I'm here to give whatever I can cheerfully. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, right? But I guess for me personally, I've looked and thought, well, okay, 10% constitutes an easy benchmark for me to look at. I can work that out. Terrible as I am at maths, I can figure out what 10% of my earnings is and I, and I can give that. I can start there. So for me, it's, a, it's an easy starting point, the 10% of my income, because the Old Testament's a shadow of the things to come. And I think, at the end of the day, I want for you to give whatever you can cheerfully, as I've said. You know, as we read 2 Corinthians 9-7, each one must give as he or she has decided in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So that would be my encouragement. Give what you can cheerfully. Give what you can cheerfully. If you want that to be 10% of your income, then start with that. That's great. If you can't manage that, start with whatever you can. It doesn't matter. It, you're not under obligation. You're under grace. If it's starting with 2% of your income, start there. Start with whatever you can cheerfully. Even if you don't have much, it's worth remembering that Jesus praised the widow who gave two pennies more than the Pharisees that gave great amounts of wealth with great fanfare. So it's not about the amount, it's about the heart. We give what we can cheerfully. I think that regular financial giving is a good thing to hunger for. It's a good thing to aim at, you know. That passage there in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about the Macedonian givers, sorry, the Macedonian believers, it's about their giving, isn't it? It's about how they were 
racked with poverty. These were really poor believers. But Paul is speaking up about their generosity. I don't imagine the amount they gave was particularly massive. But in proportion to what they had, it was. It's all about proportionality. You know, it's, it's what can we give cheerfully with a glad heart that we feel able to. And so that, that's the teaching I think I want to bring today is giving is something that I think is an outflow of being blessed, not a way to get blessed, okay? And it's something that we do through grace. It's something we do through overflow and not through obligation. And it's something that I think we ought to hunger to see more of because tell you what, giving is a tool that the Lord has used mightily in my life. I remember as an 18-year-old going off to serve Youth for Christ where I met Becca, which is a massive blessing, uh, and where I got to serve along some, alongside some amazing people, preaching the gospel in secondary schools, um, doing gospel presentations in, uh, in the town centre, learning to serve the Lord in a scary environment, you know, but I learned so much in that gap year, and it was all done off the giving of faithful Christians. I remember it was actually at Rob's church at the time, many people sowed into my life financially at that time people who I never met or never got to know particularly well sowed into my ministry at the time and enabled me to do that and I'm sure you've got tons of stories like that in your life where people have sown into the work of the Lord in your in your life and then they get to see the harvest of that they get to see you flourish in whatever it is God's called you to we see the power of God's using of our humble giving in other people's lives. So I just simply encourage you in that, and I hope that's okay. I hope that's given you some kind of a biblical perspective on how we see giving here, um, and it gives you something to pray about and hunger for, you know? How do you want to navigate this subject of giving this year? Um, I'd encourage you, you know, in this week, pray about it, seek the Lord on it, and arrive somewhere where you feel that you can give cheerfully, whatever that might be. And, uh, and let's move forward together in that. Why don't we just pray a moment? Let's just pray.